All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Man, what a, um, an ex- it's an exciting morning for us. Uh, I want to welcome those of you joining us online, but also um, kind of a big day. We planted a Campus of Mercy Church up in the northeast corner of the city back at Easter because we were uh, believed that, especially with the university being right there, but also a number of people who were traveling to Mercy Church from that area, that that was a way that we could advance the gospel. We are all about sending God's people to all people. And so we plant churches and occasionally uh, a campus of Mercy Church. And so today um, that campus has moved and is now meeting in their new facility, which means Sunday morning. So welcome Mercy Northeast family. We are Glad you're here Sunday morning. Man, cool day today. Uh, If you're here, of course, for those of you here at Providence Road, uh, we have a gathering right after our service that we call Starting Point, which is your chance to hear a little bit more about what we're all about as a church. All right, I host that. It's right after the service, right here in our worship center. Uh, host it with a few of our staff teams, about 20 minutes, and it'll be immediately following the service. All right, I invite you there. Now, let's jump into our scripture. We've got some work to do today. We're back in the book, The Song of Solomon. Nearing the end of our journey through this book, which I'm honestly a little, uh, little sad about. Um, this has been a wonderful study for us. I've heard so many good things about conversations that are happening among people in our church and your relationships. And y'all, we said at the core of this series is this idea that God's ways really are good for us. That this old Bible that the world thinks is arcane and disconnected, it actually couldn't be more relevant than it is for us right now. It's filled with hope and wisdom for our good and our flourishing as God has designed it. In fact, we said the whole key to our series, the idea we put before us every single week is that God is love. First John four, he is love. That's who he is. It's in his character. He is love. He's the one that then made love, right? He made love, made human love, and he gives love. He gives his divine love and he gives human love. And therefore, because he made love, is love, or he is love, made love and gives it, well, therefore, I'm going to pursue his way of love in my life. And that's what we've been after this whole series. You think back across it, we started with the godly man and the godly woman and said, what would it look like to walk as God has designed for us to walk in life and in relationships and in marriage? We looked at dating, marriage, sex, conflict a couple weeks ago, and then last week, Last week, we just told our student pastor to talk about Jesus because it was kind of a last minute assignment. I was still out of town and I didn't want to put this on him. All right. He was great. Uh, He did a really great job. But today we're getting to chapter seven, chapter seven, and we're going to make it all the way to about halfway through chapter eight today. We're following this couple that we've been following along with the shepherd and the Shulamite woman. They've been married for some time now. We're not sure exactly how long, long enough to have at least one fight we've seen and, of course, to make up from it. And now what we're seeing towards the end of the book is a love between two people that ages well. And so married people, I know you want to pay attention because I know you want your marriage to age well as you age. I know you don't want to get stuck, right? And I don't mean to make you sad, but most marriages do get stuck, 
somewhere along the way. They experience a conflict, maybe it's between you two, or it's a, a life circumstance that happens and it throws you into an unhealthy set of, of rhythms and patterns. You kind of become ships passing in the night. You kind of become roommates more than lovers. That's universal, all right? That happens all across the world. It's not just specific to you, your situation. We were halfway around the world and um, in Africa last week, talked to a guy who, you know, has been married for a few years, got a couple kids, and his marriage feels stuck. Like it's a universal thing, wasn't sure of the way out. And the tools we're talking about today, they're going to be pivotal for you. Y'all, we say it all the time. We expect God to change a life today. That is a core value of our ministry here. And today it may be that God has his eyes set on you and your spouse. But hear this, the application for just about everything I got to say today goes well beyond marriage. Because as it turns out, the kind of love God calls us to in marriage is a Jesus kind of love. All right, listen, while that has some unique expressions in marriage, Christ-like love is something we're called to in all of our relationships. This shouldn't be not only how your marriage grows stronger, but maybe it's how you're going to grow stronger in friendship. Maybe it's going to be what breaks down a wall with a sibling or with a parent or with a child. Maybe you and a friend been stuck in that sort of passive-aggressive stalemate for a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? You used to be good friends. Now you're not sure what to even label your friendship anymore. We all need friendships that grow old in love, that get better the longer we're in them. So while yes, the target is marriage, man, the application to family and friendship, I hope will be really obvious. So let's talk about growing old in love. Courtney, my wife and I, we have um, been married for 17 years. So that means like our marriage is old enough to have been driving for about a year, you know, about to graduate high school next year. Really excited. Um, but y'all tell you what, we're dreaming about being one of them old married couples. Okay. Uh, one of those, we have plans to buy matching jumpsuits and to take walks in the neighborhood wearing those bad boys. Okay. We are just not going to have the yippy dog. All right. We're gonna have a big dog still when we do that. But that is our, our plan. We're going to be one of those couples that like tie each other's shoes because we're too old to bend anymore, you know what I mean? So you do mine, I'll do yours kind of deal. Um, that's love. Solomon's going to talk about that kind of love today. Love that gets better with age. And his metaphor he's going to use, I love this. He's going to talk about it in terms of fire. And I just love fire. All right. He's going to talk about fire. He's going to say, this kind of love has the hotness and power of a fire that if a river washed over it, even many rivers, it still wouldn't put it out. That's Song, Song of Solomon 8, 6 and 7. It says, love's flames are fiery flames and almighty flame. That's actually the very flame of the Lord is another way you can translate that. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. That's where we're going today. That kind of love. That'll be our final verse. That'll be kind of our destination. Because y'all look, young love is awesome. All right? It is. I told you week one, uh, the cool thing about this book is it's celebrating young love and young love serves to inspire old love, but young love is fragile. It's a new flame. And so it needs a lot of attention. This is why newlyweds are all over each other all the time, right? They got to spend a lot of time tending to that new flame. But today we're talking about love that's been burning for a while. The kind of flame that has a deep bed of coals fueling it. And you could leave it alone at a campsite, wake back up the next morning, just blow on it a little and it comes roaring back to life. That kind of resilient, deep love is what we're talking about today. The kind of love that isn't anxious or wavering. The kind of love that doesn't wonder if the other person's going to leave because y'all are in some conflict. It's got a certainty and a resiliency and a depth to it. 
Great thing about God's design for marriage is that if we follow his way of love, it should get better over time like that. And I think we all want that, but most of us have just no idea how to get there. That's why marriages will start off with good intentions, but run into trouble because it takes more than good intentions to build that kind of a fire. Right? Like if I go out to my um, fire pit in my backyard and I stand over, this is perfect fire pit weather, right? So like every day, as many times as I can, I'm going to go out there and I want to build a fire. If I go out there and just stand over it and wish a fire, is it going to happen? Am I going to get a fire? Of course not. Right? As much as that would be awesome, I'm just not at that level where I can say fire and then fire happens. No. But if I go and I grab some wood, grab some kindling, grab a fire starter and everything, then I can have a fire. And that's because actions, not intentions, is what's going to determine your outcome. Good news is God has given us both instructions and resources for how to build a roaring fire of love. And again, not just love and romance, but in all kinds of relationships. Now, I will warn you, this is a PG-13 passage of scripture. I actually think this is the most sensual passage. Chapter seven is the most sensual passage of scripture in the whole Bible. Uh, we're not shying away from that. Just want to give you a heads up on it. Parents, you got little ones in here. Just know that that's coming. Okay. Um, and we've got a great kids ministry. All right. That's what I want you to know. Um, now I will pause along the way to make some points for you, but I'll give you the title of my sermon. I got four points, just observations of this text. Okay. Title of the sermon is how to build a deep bed of coals, deep bed of burning coals, old love. <laughs> that's what we're going after today. All right, and I'm going to show you four observations for how to get there that I see in this passage. The first 10 verses of chapter 7 are going to give us our, uh, our point one. Now, you remember I told you three, four weeks ago, there's some times in the back half of Song of Solomon that they just kind of get lost in praise of one another. Well, this is one of them. He's going to get lost in praise of his girl. That's intentional because, listen, just because the honeymoon is over doesn't mean sexual passion is over. In fact, it's gotten hotter with age. All right, here we go. Song of Solomon seven, verse one, how beautiful are your sandaled feet princess. He's going to start at her feet. He's going to work his way up. And what you're going to see here is, it, is she a princess? No, she's a shepherd. You remember she's been uh, tracking around these goats for a lot of time. Her feet probably aren't like incredible. Okay. They might even stink something like that, but what's he been doing all along? He's been taking those things that she is self-conscious about or could be self-conscious about. And he's been saying, no, no, you are anything other than ordinary. You, if you want to call yourself a lily, then you're a lily among thorns, right? And here he's like, I see those feet that could be the ordinary feet of a shepherd woman, but no, they are the feet of a princess. He speaks life. Never once, never once do you see this guy speak anything negative over his wife. Not once. And he keeps talking. Keeps moving up her body. The curves of your thighs are like jewelry, the handiwork of a master. Ooh, okay. Now, what he's thinking about here, he says, I mean, it's kind of obvious what he's thinking about, but when he says they're like jewelry, he's thinking of like a smoothed out stone. And he's saying, God is the master jeweler, and he did a pretty good job right there on your thighs. And some of y'all are like, I'm in church right now, and this was unexpected. If you're new to Mercy, welcome, okay? If I had to say this a couple times, well, this is not, it's just the Bible, all right? You got to take it up with the Lord. Um, here we go. Next verse. You thought that was something. Your navel 
is a rounded bowl. It never lacks mixed wine. All right, navel is not belly because he's going to say belly next. He's working his way up. Navel is what comes between thighs and belly. And he says it never lacks mixed wine. And the reason he knows that is exactly why you think he knows that. All right. That's what it is. And this is a celebration. It's a celebration of a husband and wife in intimacy together. And he keeps going. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. Now, guys, I don't know that I would one for one just say that over your wife. Okay. But what he's doing here is he's saying your body nourishes me. That's talking to her. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Was in Africa last week with um, Alan, who's our student pastor that's now become our church planter. And we're sending him back home to Nairobi, Kenya, right? He's going to go. He's going to plant a church there. And he was like, man, while we're here, we got to go on a safari. So we went on a safari and we saw gazelles everywhere on the safari, right? And I was like, what a strange metaphor for old Solomon to use. I was looking at it. But what he's saying is they are beautiful. He's celebrating how full of life his wife is. He keeps going. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. I love this. Remember we talked about this. He's recalling both with the thing about the fawns and with the neck. He's actually using wedding night language and is recalling it back and saying, man, I just, I love how beautiful you are. And here with the neck, he's saying how strong you are because she holds her head up and her neck is not just strong like a tower, but a tower of ivory. It's beautiful as well. He loves and celebrates and praises her strength. And this is good. It's good for us to do. Your eyes are like pools and Heshbon by Bath Rabim's gate. Love that. Baby, your eyes have this depth to them that I just get lost in them. They are an oasis in a desert. Mm. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Y'all, I tried so many commentaries to figure out why this dude would call his wife's nose a tower, okay? Um, <laughs> couldn't, nobody knows, okay? Nobody knows what tower they're talking about what we know is that he's praising it. Okay. He is praising her. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, the hair of your head, like purple cloth. A king could be held captive in your tresses. He's saying you're majestic. Think about it. a king is the one who has access to all the finest of finest goods, everything. And he's saying, no, no, even a king will get lost there. How beautiful you are and how pleasant my love with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. That's, listen, this is husband and wife in marital intimacy, enjoying one another as God has said back chapter five, verse one, he has blessed that and said, be drunk with love, be intoxicated with caresses. And here they are still in union with one another, even more comfortable with one another and celebrating one another all the more. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like fine wine. And I love this moment right here. Oh man, she cuts him off because that's what's happening in this romance. He's talking her up and he would have kept on going. Who knows how many chapters we would have had in this book, right? He hadn't even talked about her arms yet, but she cuts him off and she says she finishes his sentence your mouth is like fine wine. And she goes, yes, flowing smoothly for my love, gliding past my lips and teeth. I am my loves and his desire is for me. I belong to him. He belongs to me. I want him. He wants me. He loves me. I love him. This is full pleasure inside of full belonging and commitment. 
full security in the relationship. Right here, I want to make the first observation of building the kind of love that gets better with age. It's this right here. Guys, we got to use our words to build up. Use our words to build up. I'm going to be really practical with you in some of these lessons that I'm seeing from Song of Solomon today. Men and women, our words are powerful. These verses, this husband is unashamedly celebrating his wife's body. He keeps on doing this. You don't hear a word of body comparison. It's just her body that God made and he loves and he tells her so. And she's already said the same about him. He's done this before. Like I said, they do this praising thing of over one another four times. It's been an ongoing theme of our series, how powerful words are. And that the reason is because God created you and I in his image, in his likeness. The God who, according to Genesis 1, spoke and things just came to be. It was with his words that he created the world. And he says, you and I are like him. He says, Jesus is the word made flesh. That's why Jesus can resurrect because he is the word. He has the power of life, of new creation. Jesus's words over us are that we are a new creation in Christ, that we're son or daughter of God. We're not our flaws. We're not our sins. And it's so big because what the enemy will do, he wants to take your deepest shame and make that the word spoken over you. Make that your identity. But that's not God's word spoken over you. God's words is Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My favorite lyric we sing at Mercy. I forget which song it's in, but it's at one point towards the end of the song, we sing that I am not my sin and I will never be again. There is freedom in the Lord our God. That's God's word spoken over you and I. And the Bible says, okay, Christians, now that you know that, Hebrews 10, 25, don't give up, the, give up the habit of meeting together. This is the habit of some, but instead encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching because our hearts are fickle and we're prone to believe what the enemy would say about us instead of what God says about us. And the responsibility of God's people is to speak life over one another. So our words are so powerful. Spouses, listen to me. It may be that the way you get unstuck, the way to start fanning that flame is to start speaking words that build up your spouse. They just build up speak life. It can be about any number. It can be about personality. It can be about how beautiful they look today, how stallion-like he looks today, right? To use the metaphors of Song of Solomon. Take a moment on the way home to say it. And if you think, and if, by the way, if the guy or a husband or wife says, hey, you look wonderful today. And you're saying, yeah, you're just saying that because the pastor told you to. Yes, he's applying scripture. Why? That's good. Amen. Praise Jesus. That's what needs to be the response there. Right. But go beyond that. You know, I know you're like, yeah, pastor, you told us a couple of weeks ago to like use our words to build each other up. Yes. That's the point. All right. Building one another up doesn't just happen in a moment. It's building. It happens through repetition over time. I can't put one log on the fire and have a roaring fire. I got to tend to it. Keep feeding it. And that's scripture, isn't it? And the New Testament, Jesus and the authors of all the letters, they keep speaking these words of life. This is who you are. This is who you are. Now walk in it. To the woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you. You're not condemned. Now go and sin no more. Right? You think of Ephesians. Uh, the whole letter of Ephesians is three chapters on who you are. You are forgiven you are redeemed, you are secured, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.14. 
right? All of this stuff about who you are. And then chapter four, he starts talking about what it means to walk in it. Walk as a free person. We're going to speak these words of scripture, build one another up. And that only comes out of an overflow of the heart where we have been captured, captivated by God's love for us. I think of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, old German um, theologian and pastor from the 20th century who said, here's the way the church is supposed to work. We're to be bringers of grace to one another. So what happens is we meet with God in the morning. We receive grace from him. And then we come together and we bring God's grace to one another and speak words of life over one another. Speak words of life. Man, this is how you build great friendships. You celebrate what God is doing in one another. And you build up. Maybe here's a reflection. This is, a, this is a go home and think about it for a little bit. And if you're brave enough, ask the people closest to you. They will speak honestly with you in love. Are your words building the fire or extinguishing it right now? What are your words doing? Are they building the fire in that relationship or putting it out? This, this is both in private and even more so in public. Uh, a huge problem sign in your marriage would be if you're like speaking words of life to your spouse here, but then going behind their back and bashing them, talking bad about them, or talking bad about your friend behind their back, that's going to reveal the true condition of your heart. And as brothers and sisters, the best thing we can do is not allow that. Listen, gossip is the devil's playground. Probably the words that keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in the church and in the home and among friends more than any others is I love you, but it sounds like you got a problem with that person. We don't need to talk about that. You need to go talk to them about it. It's like half the pastoring that I do and what we got to do with one another. All right. That one took a little bit of time. Next one's going to come faster. Let's go to verse 11. Verse 11, chapter seven says, come my love. Let's go to the field. Excuse me. She says to him. Come, my love, let's go to the field. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Now, I told you back in week one, I said in the early days, he's going to take the lead. But then as they get married, sometimes she's going to take the lead in romance and in intimacy. Um, and here's what's happened. That's what's happened. And he has built her up with words. And then she invites him out into a picnic in the evening. And it's going to get spicy. Okay, here we go. Verse 12. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my caresses. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our doors is every delicacy, both new and old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. All right. Pretty simple, practical, but needs to be said. Application from God's word. A lesson in building old love. You got to get away together. You got to get away together. It's pretty simple. If your marriage is going to grow stronger as it grows older, you got to have some quality time together, not just quantity time together. You got to keep dating one another. You got to figure out the rhythm of that, but you've got to do it. And listen, let me say too, because this is where I am right now. I got four children that are in that elementary to early middle school age. Listen, you got to make arrangements. All right, even if you can't afford a babysitter, like barter with another couple, okay? Like you watch the kids on this Thursday and we'll watch all the kids on the next Thursday. Do what you gotta do, but your kids need to know that they are not first place in your home. They are bronze medalists, all right? <laughs> I tell my kids this all the time. Like gold medalist, that's the Lord. That is my, that is chief, that's who I love, which means I love the Lord more than your sports schedule. 
because youth sports are the God of the suburbs, okay? They are. So I love the Lord more than your sports schedule. And not only that, silver medalist still ain't you. Silver medalist is your mom. That's my girl. All right. I, you're, I'm only going to be with you for like 18 years. She and I are riding this thing out. All right. That's my girl. That's my silver medalist. Okay. So I tell my, y'all are like, wow, that's I, all the time. Who's my favorite? It's not you. It's not you. It's not you. It's her. Okay. You're not the favorite. None of you are. All right. It's her. They need to hear that. You're like, man, won't that make them like maladjusted adults? No. What makes them maladjusted adults is thinking they are the center of the universe. They're not. Okay. It's going to make them actually healthier spouses when they see marital love on display. All right. I, I just, I, I'm starting to get into a, a different sermon, I feel like, but it's a big, big deal. Okay. What they need to see, and I actually think a little bit more of a, a serious, I think one of the reasons for the great exodus of 20-somethings from church, not, it's only one of them, but it's, it's their parents prioritized them over the Lord. And they got out of the home and they thought, well, I'll just continue prioritizing me and not the Lord. Put your marriage above your kids, for those of you that have kids. The point in all of this is you got to, regardless of the relationship, whether it's a friendship, marriage, whatever, you got to prioritize it, which means you got to put it in the calendar and in the budget because those things reveal priorities. And y'all, by the way, is deeply convicting for me to preach because I got plenty of work still to do here. But maybe some good homework is to sit down together with your calendar and plan uh, for you married couples, plan one date night before Thanksgiving. All right, we're going to go out. No TVs at the restaurant that you choose to go to or whatever. Go have a picnic, okay? Just follow the pattern, whatever it is, all right? And if you find yourself thinking, yeah, I'm not ready to go out on a date with this person because we got some stuff to work through. Okay, well, now we've talked about that. Let's bring that up and let's get you the help. We want to help you take a next step, whatever that is, whether that's counseling or, or something else. And we'll help you as a church take that. Let's keep going. Chapter eight. Okay. If only I could treat you like my brother, she says to her husband, one who nursed at my mother's breasts. I would find you in public and kiss you and no one would scorn me. I know that might sound strange, um, like foreplay talk has kind of gone sideways or something, but here's the deal. Public displays of affection in this day were reserved only for immediate family, fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers, not even for husbands and wives. So she's saying she, she wishes she could kiss him publicly, but since she can't, She's going to take him to a private spot. Verse two, I'd, I would lead you. I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranate. Yes, everything that you're thinking. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. Uh, what I actually love here, um, one of the things where she says, I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. Her mother's the one who taught her about sex. And I think it shouldn't be weird for moms and dads to teach their sons and daughters about sex. And I'm not just talking about the technical stuff, okay? I'm talking about God-given joys and delights of it. One of the best things, we had a, a conference here a couple weekends ago um, called Redeeming Sex. And one of the breakouts was just, you know, how do parents talk to their children about sex? Because y'all, the world is discipling our children about this. The world is. So we need to choose to sit back have one awkward conversation somewhere along the way, or we're going to choose to engage, trust God's way of love. He who made love, trust his way of love that is beautiful, right, and good, and talk about it. And one of the best things they said in that breakout 
was um, talking to your kids. Uh, basically, they said, sex isn't weird or awkward. You are weird and awkward, okay? <laughs> but that doesn't mean it is, all right? It doesn't have to be, okay? She keeps going. Verse 4, young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Here again, we're reminded that God is the one who gives love. Sex is not a sin. It is a gift from God, but we sin with it when we engage it outside of the appropriate time. That distinction is very important. It's God's gift for marriage. God's gift to us. And it's when we take it and abuse it, that's when we sin. Young women, here's what the young women say in response. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on the one she loves? Man, this is wordplay back on the wedding day. Remember on the wedding day, chapter three, the woman said, looking off in the distance and seeing Solomon coming up, riding on the bed with the 60 men, you know, his groomsmen surrounding him. Who is that coming up out of the wilderness? And now they're saying she's with him. Instead of Solomon alone, she's right there leaning on him. It's a beautiful picture of marriage and of the gospel. In fact, it's our third lesson in building old love. We gotta, you gotta lean on one another. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's very like practically to lean your weight on someone means you trust they will hold you up as you lean on them. You trust them. See where I'm going? For marriage to grow old in love, you're going to have to trust your spouse enough to actually depend on him or her. Now that dependence looks different in every single relationship. It might be that I'm going to have to trust them enough to make some big decisions that's going to impact us financially, right? Or I'm going to have to trust him or her enough uh, emotionally, like you're going to finally open up about your feelings because that's the only way you're going to go forward together in marriage. This is a very hard one for me. Historically, I just have a hard time understanding my feelings. I'm like, I don't want to have feelings. Our feelings are for the weak or something like that. You know, it's kind of the, the, just my history and what I grew up with. So I got to trust Courtney, not only enough to share my feelings with her, but then when I do, she's not going to judge me for those or see me as weak, but she's going to help me walk through that. Sometimes I'm the one who's struggling and I got to lean a little bit more on Courtney in our marriage, right? I think about when we moved to Charlotte and we were starting a new church and there's a whole lot of pressure that I felt in my life. And I was leaning heavily on her. A few years later, her dad died and she had to lean heavily on me as she's grieving. This is, this is marriage, but this is important. Trust does not mean codependence. Listen to me. Your spouse cannot carry the weight of your soul. They can't lean on is very different than carry. This is true in friendship for sure. In dating, in fact, friendship and dating is sometimes where I see this get more mixed up. Even um, if you're looking to a human to make you feel loved and valued, like to fulfill that need for you, they're going to let you down and you're going to get hurt because that need you have that need you have. That's uh, blaze Pascal called that a, a God shaped hole in your heart which means it can only be filled by and completed by God himself, not a human's love. Now, a human's love is a beautiful gift for sure, but its purpose is meant to reinforce divine love. God gives love to reinforce his love that he has given us in Christ. And God's love for you in Christ is the only love strong enough to save you. And sometimes we lean on other people to try and save us, give us identity, give us a future, give us something to hope in. God's love is the only one that can save you and strengthen you and sustain you. And if you're not abiding in his love, 
man, you're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to lean too heavily onto someone else and you're going to crush that person with the weight of your soul and they're going to disappoint you or you're going to lean too heavily on yourself and the weight of isolation is going to crush you. One or the other is going to happen. That's why we need Christ. And it's actually a very picture of, and I have this written down, it's a very picture of the Trinity itself, which is not codependent. God who is one in person three, one in substance three in person. They are not codependent on each other, but nor are they independent. They are interdependent. And that is the way God has designed, according to John 17, marriage and other relationships to look. So yes, lean on one another, but trust your life to Christ. All right, let's finish, finish this out. I awakened you under the apricot tree, she says. There your mother conceived you. There she conceived and gave you birth. And then oh, some of my favorite passages in scripture. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are a fiery flame, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it'd be utterly scorned. Final lesson I want to offer you today is probably the most important. You see how she calls him to set her as a seal deep down and right out front. What she's talking about is permanent commitment. The kind that starts in the heart. I am yours. You are mine for life exclusively and fully yours. That's the seal on the heart and the seal on the arm is so that everybody else can see it. That's the wedding ring of their day. The seal. And fourth lesson in building old love is you got to commit for life. You got to commit for life. Courtney and I have this uh, verse right here. Um, six and seven. We have it stamped on the inside of our wedding bands. Uh, we're in this till one of us dies, period. Divorce is not an option for us. Murder, maybe, but divorce, <laughs> depending on, you know, the day, the week, y'all know, y'all been married for a minute, but divorce isn't an option. In fact, the last thing we said in our, um, in our wedding vows, we're standing there with each other, we said, you know, till death do us part. And then we said, I will never, ever divorce you. And in the security of that commitment, we can devote ourselves to putting logs on the fire, to figuring out conflict, to working through things, because there's no other option. We've shut down all the other options. The only way is the way forward together. I, I remember um, one time we're in seminary and she starts packing her bags because she's like, this is awful. And I was like, where are you going? She's like, no, we are leaving. We are going, we're done with this. But it was always together, even in the hardest of days, it's together. And I know, I recognize, I don't say that lightly because there's a couple of ways you could be really skeptical, skeptical or on alert a little bit about what I'm saying right now. But I'm confident this is God's intent. I know about Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about adultery and the exemption clause, you would say there, I know about first Corinthians seven, where the apostle Paul talks about the abandonment of a spouse and the exemption that you would, that you see there. But even if you take those clauses as grounds for divorce, they're not what God wants. It's not what he desires for you, nor are they your first reaction. If at best 
They are a last resort allowance for sin in a broken world. Let me tell you why you got to commit for life. It's because marriage is a representation of the love of Jesus for us. So to those of you who put a low value on marriage, I recognize that. I recognize that our greater like popular culture puts a low value on marriage. You know, you don't care about sex before marriage and you don't need some piece of paper telling you how you feel about someone. What this series has been saying over and over again is that God's way of love is the way of love he has given you for your flourishing. And it works best when it's not about you. It's about him and his love for you. I mean, thank God that Jesus didn't commit, that he did commit to us as his bride and not his long-term living girlfriend. He set us as a seal upon his arm. He said, I love you to the grave and back. And I know some of you right now, you're in a relationship, you're treating marriage lightly. I would imagine you're treating Jesus lightly as well. And I want to implore you, commit yourself to Christ. Commit yourself to him. Experience his full on complete love for you. And in that, I believe you'll either commit or find your way out of the relationship that you're in. You're like, yeah, but if I commit to this, this person and we get married, I don't know if it'll work out. Well, what do you mean by that? What if they do leave? Well, Christ will never leave you and his love is enough. What if they cheat on me? Christ will never betray you. He, we just sang it. He has always been faithful. And the last line of that song says he, he will always be faithful. You need to set Christ as the source of your love and security, not that person. And then you'll be free to commit yourself to them. Listen to others of you who are married. Man, I've been praying a lot for y'all. Um, specifically those of you that are thinking about leaving. You haven't said it out loud to anybody yet. It's just kind of down. You've been tinkering with it in your heart. Let me say the Lord has so much grace to offer you. Now, I want to I do a little bit of an aside and say, if you're in an abusive situation right now, we want to get, we want to help you get out of that. I'm not talking about that. That's unsafe. And your only application would be to ask the Lord for enough courage to tell somebody. Okay. And let the church help you. I'm talking to the husband or wife who is just tired, frustrated. Maybe you've done the damage or you've been the one that has been hurt by their sin. I want to implore you right now, go to Christ. I got no idea how it's going to go from there. Every situation is different, but I know a God who resurrected from the grave. That's the God that I know. Solomon says, love is as strong as death. That's actually a foreshadowing of Christ. Whose love is stronger than death. And because he got up out of the grave, I've seen that same God. I've seen him resurrect souls. I'm looking, looking around this room at stories I know. I've seen him resurrect your life, take you from death to life. And I know marriages that were on the brink of death or dead. And he has brought back to life because that's our God. He is a resurrecting God. The God who resurrected still continues to make dead things alive again, dead people alive again, and dead relationships alive again. I've seen it. And I know I know because of who he is. He's not done. Before you got here today, we didn't sit down and pray and go, oh, well, it turns out God's all finished working. No, 
We prayed, God, what we have seen you do, past grace, that we have seen time and time again. Lord, if you will, do it again. Because I know you got plenty still to do. And that's actually how I want to close out. I want to close out this service here, Northeast, online. I want to close this out all the same way, um, or at least this part of the sermon. We're going to do an old-fashioned altar call, all right? Those of you who grew up in church, you might know what I'm talking about. If not, let me explain. I think, I, I think for, for adults, you know, as we near the end of this series, one of the things that I'm reminded of is um, summer camp as students, uh, middle and high school students and college retreats and stuff like that. You have this moment towards the end where you can really respond to the Lord. And moments of decision are good for us. They're good for us. They're just like Ebenezer, scripture says, these stones of remembrance that we call back and remember what God did. And he did something there. And I'm remembering because he did it there. He can do it again. And I think that might be today for some of y'all. And so what the, the problem with us as adults is that um, we've just, we don't go to camp anymore. We don't go on retreats anymore. And we struggle to have those moments where we respond significantly to the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I'm committing to you right here, right now. And so welcome to the last night of camp. Okay. That's what we're going to turn our service into a little bit right here. Um, I'm going to lead you in a time of prayer. And what I want to call you to husbands and wives, I want to call you to bringing the husbands you lead, bring your wife down to, we're just going to call the front of the stage at Mercy Northeast, the front of the stage. If you're at home, your coffee table, I don't care. All right. Wherever you make a move, you come down and you pray together. You pray over one another and may, it might just be squeezing your spouse's hand and saying, Hey, I'm not going anywhere. I, I'm here with you to the end. Let's go and commit our marriage again afresh to the Lord. It's going to be squeezing her hand or his hand and saying, I'm sorry, but today's a new day. Y'all, it is not an overstatement to say that might change not only your marriage, that might change the trajectory of your children and their children. Just taking a moment to get before the Lord. And so our worship team, they're going to make their way back up here. They're going to sing a song over us. As they sing over us, the words will be on the screen and you can uh, stay if you feel like the Lord's calling you to stay in your seat. But whether you're a couple and you're coming down uh, just to renew your commitment to one another before the Lord or you're uh, by yourself right now, maybe because your spouse isn't here, they haven't been in church in forever, or maybe because you're not married and you're going to renew that friendship. You're just going to renew your commitment to the Lord or you're going to finally say, Lord, I'm giving my life to you. All of that. It is time for us as a church to repent and believe right here, right here together. So let me pray over you and then I'll lead you to come. Father, thank you for your grace over us. Thank you for the hope of the gospel that, God, you carry us. We don't have to even lean on you. We can fully give ourselves to you. Thank you that you have committed to us, not just for life, but for eternity. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray for courage right now for the men and women in this room, married, single, widowed, whatever stage of life, here at a Northeast campus, in their homes, wherever it is, would you give us courage to respond to you in celebration and in hope of a day to come? Knowing that heaven is waiting on us, 
you want to begin that renewal now. We believe that. And we trust you as we worship together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Listen, as, um, as our team begins to sing over us, we're going to stay seated until they, um, until they stand us. But while you're seated and you're praying there, I want you to go ahead. For those of you that feel compelled by the Lord, come to the altar and let's pray and respond to the Lord. I'll be waiting right over here if you want to just come and pray with me. But let's fill this altar with the prayers of God's people. You come as we sing.